Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Terrence Maligon. We have uh, three guests this week. First up, Michael Kay, the television voice of the New York Yankees for the Yes Network and the host of the Michael Kay Show that airs 3 to 7 on ESPN's New York City radio affiliate. Really enjoyed that interview. We talk about his competition with Mike Francesa in New York, how he feels about Francesa navigating the job of being the voice of the New York Yankees on television and essentially being a daily columnist every day for four hours where you have to be critical of the New York Yankees. So I think you can enjoy that conversation. Even if you're not in New York, uh, Michael Kay is a preeminent voice and, and, and one I think worth listening to. That is followed by Mike McCarthy, a sports media reporter for the Sporting News, and Hannah Withiam, an associate editor for The Athletic. We have a roundtable. It's their uh, first time on this podcast, and we talk about Fox's new college football show, the one that just hired Urban Meyer, a look at the Monday Night Football booth following Jason Witten's departure. Hannah interviewed Michael Kay for The Athletic, so that's a good tie-in for this podcast. And then we finish up with the dual roles of Jessica Mendoza, Alex Rodriguez, David Ross, David Ortiz, who are working for both broadcast outlets and professional teams, and what that means. So Michael Kay up first, and then the roundtable with Mike McCarthy and Hannah Withiam after that, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Michael Kay is the television voice of the New York Yankees for the Yes Network. He's the host of the Michael Kay Show, which airs in drive time in New York City on ESPN's New York City affiliate. He also does Center Stage which is a really good interview program on the Yes Network. And Michael Kay joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, Richard. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, let us start, Michael, with the uh, with the news of the day, at least in the, ter- in the world of Michael Kay. And that is yesterday you had a, whatever it was, 47-minute interview with James Dolan, the owner of the New York Knicks, who's not just a New York figure, but a national figure, given the importance of the Knicks and the Rangers. Um, so I want to start with this, Mike. How, how would you? I know it's not the easiest thing to do, but how would you assess how the interview went from from your end? Well, from my end, uh, I you know I felt good about it because I thought we asked every question that had to be asked. Uh, there were no punches pulled. Uh, a lot of people assume because we're the flagship station, the Knicks and the Rangers, that there are certain parameters. Uh, you know, laid down before the interview. And I can be honest with you, Richard, if, if there were parameters laid down, I would not have done the interview. He's pretty cool with that stuff. Once you get him to come on, like he, he agrees to come on, he just says, ask me whatever you want. Now he's got that full legal pad in front of him, which doesn't make him look great. Um, but I, I thought we asked everything. I, I just think it leaves a lot of Nick fans either angry or left empty because they don't get the answers that they want. And a lot of people just feel that, if you don't get the answers that they want to hear and that I'd like to hear, well, you have to be combative or like force him into doing it. You know, he's got, he's got his talking points he wants to get to. I think he got himself into uh, some trouble. I don't think he came out looking good from the interview, but uh, you know, I, I, you know, driving home after the show, I felt pretty good about it. Couple of structural things, Michael, you have uh, three people on your show. How do you, um, is that do you talk before an interview like that in terms of how the interview will go, or is it basically if if anyone has a question at that moment, they jump in and ask the question? We do not discuss it before time. Uh, for the most part, it's usually you know me and Don McGregor go back and forth, and then when Peter wants to talk, 
you know, he'll just give me a look and uh, I'll let him get in this question. Uh, the one thing that we always do, though, um, I, I'm, I mean, if I have a strength in this business, I don't think I have many, but if I have a strength, I think I'm a pretty good interviewer. And a lot of interviewing is about following up and things like that. So if he's answering a question that I give and I want to follow up, I'll just give a look to Don and Peter that they know to lay out. But that's really the only uh, the only ground rules that we have. But we don't say, okay, we're going to go one, two, three, one, two, three. It's not like that because that that's not the way to do an interview because you should be following up on what a guy's answers are. Uh, and just for so people know, Pete, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter Rosenberg is the third person on that show with Don LaGreca and Michael Kay. Um, I'm interested in what are the moments before the interview starts and what are the moments after the interview starts? Could you could you describe if you had any kind of interaction with Dolan before he sits down? And then I think even most interestingly, what's the interaction after the interview is over or after after you guys are off the air? Well, I think the interview, if I'm correct, Richard, started at like 5.02. Uh, and the first time I saw Dolan was at 5.01.40. That's when he walked yeah. into the um, he walked into the, uh, the studio. He, he was outside, but, you know, obviously we're doing the show. I think he got there about 10 minutes before. Now, truth be told, he has a battery of people that are with him. Uh, they had security that comes and cases the place like two hours before. Uh, and then his PR people got there at about, I'd say, 4.20, and they were anxious for me to look at the tape that was ultimately his defense of, of why he reacted that way with the fan. And uh, I looked at the tape, and then the woman said, well, what did you think? And I said, uh, I don't think he gives him an excuse for doing what he did. It just doesn't give him an out. She goes, yeah, but they were out to get him. I said, but the only way he could be gotten was as if he said anything. So they knew coming in that that was my feeling. I, I just, I, I think they, they were really selling that tape as if that got him off the hook, and I don't think it did. Did it make the guys in the garden, you know, those two fans look great? Well, I don't know if they had an agenda. I'm not going to pass judgment on that. And some people have even told me since, if you look at the tape that TMZ had, it was over the kid's left shoulder while his friend right. was shooting over the right shoulder. But I, I, I don't want to break down like the Zabruder tape. I just told the, you know, the, there were three PR people. I said, I, I'm sorry. Uh, he can explain it that way, but it, it, it's not going to buy my approval. And they were, I, I thought at that point that maybe they would pull the interview, but they, they, they sent them in there because once he gives his word, you know, we had an interview with him after the Oakley thing. He, he will always say, I'm coming on. You ask me anything you want. There's nothing that, that's off limits which is, you know, the only way you can do an interview. And, and, and that, that was it. Now, as for afterward, he's sitting there. So he's gathering his papers. I said, off the air, I said, thank you for coming on. I'm sure that's, that's not easy. He said, listen, you guys have to ask, ask the question. I thought this was a really cool thing for him to say. He said, and if you didn't ask me uncomfortable questions, then it wouldn't look like a legitimate interview anyway. He said, so I'm glad you asked me it. You know, some of it was not, you know, something that, you know, I, I felt comfortable talking about, but I have to. You know, I'm a big boy. You asked me what you want, and that was it. And then uh, he walked into the, uh, you know, the control room uh, where, you know, our, our producer and our program director talked to him for a little bit. But, you know, at that point, I'm reading copy because we were way behind on ads, and I never really got a chance to say thank you other than, you know, when he was sitting in the uh, in the in the chair right after the interview, and we went to break. 
Hmm. I appreciate that. First of all, Michael, zero PR people on this uh, podcast, so you're you're safe there in terms of having to deal with anybody oh, good. other uh, other than me. Um, what? Well, and I'm glad you brought that the the film that the sort of garden is using as um, you know their I guess their term ambush. I mean, inconclusive. I, I would say is being nice. And again, if the if Dolan does not say anything. There is no TMZ footage. There, this doesn't, this doesn't exist. Um, right. Do you? Are you? Are you one, Michael, who will go back and for again? You're in New York City, so you've interviewed many, many well-known people. You've done this on the Yes Network, but this is, you know, this was an important interview for you. You're in a competitive race with Mike Francesa at WFAN. This got a ton of attention. It essentially would have led every uh sports paper if not for the uh Odell Beckham stuff and the Le'Veon Bell stuff. Do you go back and listen or watch an interview like this or because you've done so many of them, it's just another day and you move on? I, I wouldn't say it's just another day because obviously the race with Francesca is going to be very, very tight, which we're leading right now, uh over about a month and a half. So a big day like that could be the difference. So I it's not just any other thing. Um, but I don't go back and, and listen to it. I do think about it. You know, on the ride home, I was thinking about, is there something that I missed or something like that? Uh, but uh, in terms of, like, sitting down and listening to it, Richard, i got to be honest with you. I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a wife at home. When I get home, if I'm starting to listen to tapes, that's not going to play well. So, I mean, they, they want to jump around and play Monster and stuff like that. So I, I just don't physically have the time to listen to the show over again, but I did play it over my head a lot. Yeah, no, I, I, I got it. I, as, a, as the uh, parent of uh, very young twins, uh, yeah, that's that's not selling very high in the household uh, <laughs> when, you, when you get home. Um, something, you know, I, I, you, we, we sort of mentioned Francesca, so I'll get to this now. Um, I do want to ask you about, and this is the reason I have you on, is because I find your career really fascinating in terms of navigating uh, a sports talk show in the biggest city of America at the same time calling uh, Yankee games. You're very unique, essentially, in the media on that. But people know that um, you are in a very – people outside of New York, I should say, know that the New York City sports talk radio race is heated. It draws a lot of attention. It draws a lot of page views, not just in New York City but nationally. And, Mike, something I've always respected about you, you've always been honest about Mike Francesa. One, how you feel about him, personally, professionally. Two, that you want to beat him in the ratings. So that's my preamble to ask you a couple of questions. Um, how okay. often have you how how often have you in, interacted with Mike Francesa on any kind of professional or personal basis? On a professional basis, I, I was a guest on Mike and Chris's show. Uh, you know, when uh, I was I was just doing the Yankees on radio. And I didn't have a talk show on another station, so I would go on every now and then. Uh, personally, very, very little. I think the last time I ever spoke to him for any length of time was at the Belmont Stakes many years ago. Uh, on, the, on the Friday before, I had been criticized by Phil Mushnick of the New York Post, uh, the, the media critic. And uh, I ill-advisedly went nuts on him on the air. I just... I just aired, you know, spilled my guts. Something had been building up. And there was a lot of, lot of pushback. And, like, you know, Mushnick wrote another column about how you know, I was terrible, whatever the case may be. And um, Francesca walked over 
to me and my wife. We were sitting at a table at the Belmont, and, and he said, yeah, I hear you in a little bit of hot water. And blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, it's just a, it's more of an annoying thing. He says, you got to forget what these guys say. You can't pay attention to it. And he was very kind. He was very nice to my wife. And, and that's really the only interaction I've had with him. And that might have been like eight years ago. It's just the stuff that he says on the air, uh, how, how he's like just so pejorative when he talks about our station and me and you know, using you know, phrases like pea shooter. I, I, just, I just think it's so, it's so, it's so classless. I, I mean, it, it just, there's no grace to his, his winning. And I, I actually had a, a Q&A that I did with the athletics, Hannah Whitman. And yep. I said, I just don't get that kind of thinking because if you're at the top of the mountain, I, I don't know, I, 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 if I'm at the top of the mountain, I'm going to enjoy the view instead of like urinating down the side of the mountain and everybody like trying to make their way up. And he just has not handled his success with any kind of grace at all. And that, that's the thing that bothers me. I, I don't have a problem with him. I don't have a problem with him coming back, you know, everybody has to live their lives the way they want. I have more of a problem with Entercom doing that to the people that they hired to replace him. But it's just, it's just his really harsh manner. And um, I, 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 I don't like being spoken about like that. I don't deserve it. I treat people with respect. And all I ask is that people treat me with respect. And I just don't get it from him. Uh, I Again, I appreciate that honesty. And I think me and you are similar in that, it's hard for me to let go. It would be hard for me to not want to say something if a guy who I was competing with was sort of being pejorative or denigrating me. Is it um, on a on a daily basis, Mike? I mean, is it hard for you not to say anything on air? Is it? Is it? Have you felt like you you yourself have said, which again I respect. You said you're you you are a thin skinned person. And it is hard for you to sort of actually translucent, right? And it's hard for you to sort of walk away or look the other way. But you don't talk about the guy every day, so I, I are you fighting yourself internally on a daily basis? Would you like to go off on Francesa daily, or is it not that acute? Um, you know, I, I was born in the South Bronx, Richard, and like I. I have fought for everything that I've gotten. You know, I wasn't handed anything in this business. I didn't have any connections and grew up poor, whatever the case may be. My parents didn't buy me into USC. So <laughs> I, I, I kind of earned my way. And uh, I, I just, I listen, I, I do listen to my bosses who always say, you know, you got to take the high road. Let, let him do that stuff. And I, my, my reply to them is the high road is the road less traveled in this world. It just is, unfortunately. Um, in terms of like talking about him now, it's more of a calculated decision by me, Richard. I used to talk about him more when he would say something and I would fire back. But I, I hearken back to an advertising class I, I took when I was at Fordham where the, the teacher drilled home. Pepsi always talks about Coke in their ads. Coke never mentions Pepsi, ever. You never mention you know, somebody that's below you. Well, when we were looking up, way up at him, what harm did it do me to talk about him? It just brought attention to me. But now we're, we're neck and neck. And if you want to look at, you know, the different metrics, you can say we're ahead of him. Obviously, the last book he won by like a tenth of a point. That's great. I, I don't want to call attention to him. I think that we have we – I really believe, Richard, that we have separate audiences. Ours more younger skewing, 
Um, you know, we have more fun on our show. He kind of preaches and pontificates and bloviates. And his, his audience is locked in. They've been there a long time. No matter what kind of show he does, he's going to do. But there is that crossover group that could put you over the top or not. So I don't need to be reminding them that Mike Francesa exists. So Peter occasionally takes his shots, and I'll give him a little bit of a look. Now, I don't exactly know what's in it for us. So it's more of a strategic thing that I shut up now rather than, like, I'm fighting myself. And if I really had something to say, I would say it. But uh, for the most part, you know, people interview me like Hannah Whitman did and, and you're doing on this podcast right now. I'll speak the truth, but I'm not going to bring it up to give him an excuse to take another shot because I just don't know if you could win that with somebody that there doesn't seem to be any floor in what he would say. So I have a floor in what I would say. It's just, it's, I, I would just go so low. I wouldn't go like bedrock. And I think that Mike would, and I don't, I don't need that fight. And we'll mention that Hannah Withiam is part of a roundtable with Mike McCarthy after this segment with Michael Kay. All right, one more on this, Mike, and that is um, if you end up winning the next book, uh, would you how, – how, how, how will you publicly address that if you publicly address that? Well, I don't want to uh, – I certainly don't want to jinx it. I mean, we could still lose. It is, as I said, it's close and we're ahead. Uh, I've thought about this a lot, Richard, to be honest with you. You know, you, you know Peter Rosenberg, who's younger, you know, he's 39. He's kind of like the younger, hipper part of the show, and Don and I are in our 50s. And he said, oh, we should, like, just go off. And, and I said, I, I don't know. I mean, it's taken 17 years to get here. So, I mean, if, if we celebrate over that, it's going to make us look ridiculous. So but the only thing that I'll say, and, and this is what I truly believe, I've I believed this for the last couple of years, Richard, the numbers have just caught up with reality. Our show has been far better than his, uh, even before he retired. It's just his show's not the same as it was with Chris, and it wasn't the same as it was the first couple of years after Chris. It's just not. It's it, to me, it's a, it's it's a bit tired and worn, and it's not the same kind of talk show that works now in this country. So, I, I, my only my only response if somebody calls up and makes a big deal out of it, the numbers finally caught up with reality. We've always thought that we're better. And we've had a lot – I mean, you're in this business, Richard, on both ends. And we've had a lot of things that worked against us. He has two stations that combine for his, his um, number. We have a really good show that leads into us with Stephen A. Smith, but it's a national show which does not play in New York. New York is not a national sort of consumption in terms of sports radio. They want local stuff. So our lead-in does not get the rating that his lead-in gets. His lead-in lead is actually a higher rating – than him. Uh, he's got the Yankees on his station as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that work against us. And, you know, he's been at it for 30 years. Uh, we've only been on, on our FM stick for about the last nine years. Before that, we had no competitive chance at all on 1050 AM. So, yeah, it sounds like excuses, but people in the business know exactly what we're up against. And uh, I, I'm proud of what we've done. And ESPN must be happy as well because you know, last October they signed me to a five-year extension. So I would love to win. I thought about it a lot. Uh, I, I wonder how he would react. I don't think he's going to react well. I think he'll make excuses. And even when he won the, the fall book, and that was just by one-tenth of a point, he started talking about streaming numbers. If you count them, it was a big win. Well, streaming numbers don't count, Richard. If they counted for him, then I'd have to count my Yes Network numbers, which would put us far and away ahead of him. So it gets to be a, a pissing match 
which I'm reluctant to get into, but I do want to defend myself. I think we've done very, very well over the last couple of years. Yeah, I appreciate you addressing that, Mike. Thanks. You, um, you, you are a drive-time sports talk show host in the biggest city in America, and you've now done this for a long time. What have you learned about radio since you started? And maybe, I think our audience nationally will be interested in this, is there something specific to New York sports talk that you think is different than anywhere else? You know what? I, I used to think so. I'm not quite sure. I think New Yorkers are just as passionate and sometimes can be just as petty as any small town that roots for a college football team. Uh, I, I believe that that talk radio now in this country moves the dial. And I don't, I don't mean that as a pun. I think that they are now the host of talk radio shows are what, you know, the Dick Youngs or the Mike Lupica used to be. It's kind of like we set the narrative. And I think a lot of newspapers react to talk radio. You know, you mentioned before about the ratings. I mean, the ratings battle between me and, and, and Mike Francesa. I mean, it's not big news in New York. I mean, it the, is. The, the newspapers like follow that. And it's like Andrew Marchand is, is, is almost making a career out of it with the New York Post. And, you know, that's all well and good. I want everybody to, to find their niche. So I just think that it's now the town hall. It's now like the old newspaper column. Uh, I just think that it's a really, really influential voice in, in the city that the radio show has heard. I really do believe that. I didn't think that at the beginning. I thought it was kind of like a, a lark, you know, a second job for me. But it's turned into a, a really important voice. I was a newspaper writer before I got into broadcasting. And, you know, every newspaper writer wants to get their column. Well, this is now my column. I have a four-hour column where I can opine on anything, not just baseball. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's an important voice in sports now. Uh, it's interesting you say that, Mike, because you, what's unique about New York, at least in my opinion, is that you are one of the only people who have to deal with multiple daily outlets, daily newspapers, who write about what you do. The New York Post still has two sports media writers. The New York Daily News, uh, Bob Raceman is still writing for them. I don't know what his status is, but he, he does write for them, at least on a freelance basis. The New York Times, while Richard Sandemir is no longer doing that, he was doing that on a daily basis uh, since you've been there. And then there will be people who will write about you and Francesa nationally, like myself, the dead spins of the world, the big leads, awful announcing. What is, uh, what's that like, Mike, to be covered as you have been covered, especially since prior to that, you were a newspaper writer who covered the Knicks and the Yankees. You were on the opposite side. It's, um, it's a little jarring. And I think that coverage of talk radio is a little bit unfair. And I'm going to defend Mike Francesa now where, you know, he got a lot of grief for the Alex Rodriguez interview that he did when Alex, you know, lied to him and said that he didn't, I mean, oh, he should have been tougher on Alex. You can't reach down a guy's throat and make him speak what you think is the truth. All you can do is ask the questions and he can hang himself or not. Uh, so I just think that people look at talk radio where you're talking extemporaneously in my, in my, you know, in my case for four hours a day, and you're going to, like, parse every single word or every mistake that you make. And, you know, people jump on Francesa. There's actually a website that follows him every, you know, every wrong prediction that he makes. I mean, you've got to give predictions. I mean, you've got to give your take on things. They, could, they might not jive with everything else. So I think it's, 
It's very, very difficult. Sometimes I think it's unfair because, again, I was a writer, and I know that when you're writing a column, you have a delete button. So if you, if you write something stupid, you can reconsider and delete it before you hit send. In, in sports talk radio, stupidity is going to come out of your mouth every now and then over four hours. And if you're going to be judged on that and every word is going to be parsed, it's, it's difficult. And for a while, you know, I worried about every, every little single thing I said. Because I think that in this world that we're in right now, Richard, you have one mistake, one misspeak, one thing that might be just a wrong thing that goes against the grain in society. They're going to call for your job. They're going to boycott your show. They're going to call for advertisers to boycott your show. That's a lot of pressure on anybody on any, any live venue on TV or radio. And now there are people covering it as well. So there's no getting away from it. And I think that does add, it adds a modicum of pressure to what you do other than just worrying about ratings. Mike, how far can you go in your role on um, ESPN's radio station in terms of being critical of a player but even more importantly, being critical of an owner who broadcasts games on your radio station. Well, uh, again, when Dolan was on yesterday, my bosses, I've got great people like Tim McCarthy and Ryan Hurley. They never said, hey, uh, you go easy. And, and you know, I, I would have understood it if they did because our Nick and Ranger contract is up. And I know they're negotiating to renew the rights. So, I mean, there's a lot riding on that. There's a lot of people's jobs at stake if, if they don't get the rights and, and things like that. So that, that enters into your mind, but at no time did it influence me. Well, I'm going to go easy on Jim Dolan. You know, you can't really think about that. You almost, there has to be a separation of power. If you're going to do a talk radio the right way, you can't worry about allegiances. I mean, if I'm going to sit there, Richard, and criticize the New York Yankees at times, and they're my bread butter in terms of where everything is played off of. You know, I'm the play-by-play voice on the Yes Network. Then I'm sure as heck going to not criticize Jim Dolan because we have to run his games on the radio station. It's just it's something that, that sometimes is difficult to navigate, but it's got to be done if you're going to be fair to your listeners. All right, so let's get into that. I'm glad you mentioned that. This will be your 28th opening day calling Yankee games, first 10 on radio, uh, the next 18 on the Yes Network. And again, check that Hannah Withium Q&A out in the athletic with Michael. Uh, I've taken some uh, some of what she got out of you and sort of uh, try to amplify that. Um, so you you have this juggling act where you are the television voice of the New York Yankees. And at the same time, you're essentially, as you said, you're a daily columnist four hours a day on New York sports talk. Those two things are going to eventually clash. Mike, the Yankees aren't yep. going to win 162 games. So how do you navigate that? You're being paid by the Yankees on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you do owe the, in my opinion at least, you owe the listener some kind of honesty and transparency about that organization when it's, when it's due. So how do you navigate that? Well, the thing that makes it doable, I mean, there, there, there are some situations that I think it would be untenable. I really believe that if you were the voice of the Knicks or the Rangers, I don't know if the way I do my show would be allowed. I mean, if like Mike Breen had a daily talk show, I mean, I, I know for a fact that the garden transcribes every single word of my show and Francesca's show and wow. executives look it over. So the Yankees, uh, it, it works because going back to George Steinbrenner and now with Hal Steinbrenner, they realize that if you're going to be believed in terms of like when you talk nicely about the team, 
it can't all be unicorns and rainbows. You've got to also point out the negatives. Because when you point out the negatives, then when you actually say something good, it's going to be believed. But if it's all hearts and flowers and, and a love note to the Yankees, how could you ever be believed when you say something's actually going well? I have never, ever been called on the carpet by the Yes Network or anybody with the Yankees in terms of, um, of what I said. I think the more difficult aspect, though, Richard, is that I know for a fact that at home games, there's like 20 TVs in the Yankee clubhouse. And I'm doing the radio show, which is simulcasted on Yes, and it's on in that clubhouse. And, uh, you know, I criticize players for things that they did. And I'm going to be on the same plane with those guys. I'm going to have to deal with those guys. That's, that's the part that's tough. But in terms of, like, saying something about the New York nation, I'm fair. And, uh, I mean, I don't pull any punches. And they, they let me say, I've, again, I've never been called up by Hal Steinberg. Hey, that one, you shouldn't say that, that if you ever say that again. Never. That makes it easy. But I think there's some organizations. That's why people that do what I do, I think there's one other guy in the country, Grant Napier of the Sacramento Kings, who has a daily talk show and is the play-by-play voice of the team. It's, right. it's really hard, and you have to be in the right organization to do it. And you would think, you know, you know one of the Bob Raceman you mentioned earlier called, yes, Al Yang Zira. You know, people could say what they want. I mean, we criticize the Yankees on Yankee broadcast. And I just think that that's all part of the gig. In New York, every New York fan doesn't want everything positive about their team. They want to hear the truth. They're railing about a move, taking a pitcher out in the sixth inning. They're, they're upset about it. Yankee fans call up, and they're mad at Aaron Boone. So it's part of the narrative, and I think the Yankees accept it. I, I Listen, I know that they watch it. You know, it's, it's on in the offices in Tampa where Hal Steinbrenner works, and they see everything I say, and I, I, I certainly don't get any pushback, and that makes it a lot easier. Mike, what about the idea of self-censoring, that because you have a financial tie to the New York Yankees, there would be things that you see in your role as the Yankees play-by-play broadcaster that you do not – let the audience in on when it comes to ESPN, when it comes to your sports talk job at ESPN? The only rule I have, and this was even when I was a writer, when we, when writers are allowed to, to ride on the charter, anything that happens on that plane is off limits. I never talk about it on yes. I never talk about it on ESPN because I'm there as a, um, not a, as a favor because it's paid for, but it's a convenience for me. And those are always the rules. And I think that's the rules for a lot of teams. You're going to fly on that plane. Anything you see on that plane is not to be discussed. And I think that's fair. But anything that I hear in the clubhouse or anything like that, anything I'm privy to, I'm, I'm going to report it. If, if it's news, I'm going to report it. So in terms of self-censoring, listen, I've got to be honest with you. Do, do I throw the punch with a little less heft if it's about the Yankees and the Mets? I don't think I do, but... I don't know. Can we get into our our subconscious? I'm not quite sure. And 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 to be honest with you, the the ESPN gig is just as lucrative as the as the Yes gig. So I owe them all the honesty that I could possibly give them. It's not it's not like some side little gig. It's an important gig, and ESPN has entrusted me with Afternoon Drive, which is the biggest part of real estate and radio. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shortchange them. I just won't. At least I don't think I do. What, uh, what, what's been the trickiest situation that you've had? You know, again, having lived in New York for a while, I do know that um, you, you had a really good relationship with Alex Rodriguez. And then, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think you were critical of him, and correctly so, and that relationship was not as good uh, ever again. 
was has Rodriguez been the toughest case in terms of navigation or something else? Oh, I mean, the Rodriguez thing turned out to be the toughest case because by me being as critical of what he did when he got suspended for the year, that obviously got my butt kicked radio wise when he went when he you know when he was suspended he went on Francesca's show and and I think he did that on purpose because he knew that he would hurt me because Alex is savvy in that way and we didn't talk for about a year and a half at all no communications and we slowly patched it up and we have a, I, I'd say we have a pretty good relationship I think that he has to understand you know my truth is my truth and I thought that what he did was just terrible. And I, I said it, and I said it harshly. And, and if I'm if I'm Alex Rodriguez, and you know he thought he was he had a good relationship with me, which he did, he probably felt betrayed. I didn't think it was a betrayal. I mean, I was friends with him or had a relationship with him, but you know, when you do something like that, if I don't call you on it, I mean, what does that make me? It makes me look terrible. So again, listeners have to trust me to tell the truth. And if it cost me Alex Rodriguez's uh, relationship, so be it. But you know, we we patched it back up. Now in present times, what's really difficult. Is and I, I I don't know why, but I find it tough, and I do it in, in criticizing Aaron Boone. I mean, I really like Aaron Boone. I mean, we worked a, a playoff series together um, on radio for ESPN like ten years ago, and I've had a great relationship with him when he worked at ESPN. I consider him a friend. He lives in my town, but he knows the rules of engagement. He's made it easier. Listen, you have to do what you have to do. Don't worry about our friendship. But that that to me makes me a little uneasy. Because I do genuinely like the guy. All right. I'm going to keep you here for another 10 minutes, Mike, and then I'm going to let you go. I appreciate uh, your time today. Um, one of the things sure. that one of the things that I pre- I actually reached out to you when you did this because I really appreciated it, is you went off when the Daily News announced their massive layoffs last summer. You, will n- you were not only vocal on just the horrific management that existed at that paper, but a larger issue in terms of the media is under siege and accuracy and truth is under siege. And I I don't know if you got any blowback for that, but obviously as someone in the media, I really appreciated you using your forum to say something. And it also, in a way, Mike felt like, and again, if I'm overstating this, tell me, but it did feel like a little bit of an anti-Trump message in terms of when it comes to the facts. And that's a risk for you because there's certainly, even though it's New York, I guarantee there's some Trump supporters who listen to your show. Did you calculate that at all? Or was all this basically just, you saw the news, you're a former newspaper person, and you decided to go? Well, I, I, I thought it, obviously, as your mind is, you know, that that's all off the cuff. And, you know, as you're going, if you're good at what you do, I, I hope I'm decent, you are editing as you're going. And I thought, I tiptoed around the political aspect of it, but that, I mean, whether you're anti-Trump or pro-Trump, even people that are pro-Trump, they have to realize that the, 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 the attack on the media is not good for this country. It's just not. And newspapers and, and reporters and journalists are being marginalized. And the, the only thing that I worried about is that I'm allowed to say whatever I want on the air, except that ESPN is very, very clear. Do not make political statements on the air, whatever. Your side, the other side, right, left, whichever way you fall, that's not what this show's about. And I tried not to make it be a political statement, and I don't want to tip my hand one way or the other, but I just think that the, 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 the attack on the media will ultimately be 
very, very damaging for this country. And, you know, the Daily News is just one instance of it. I started talking about the sports aspect of it, but papers can't go out of business because the bad guys in the world want journalists to go away because then there's no cop. There's no, there's no repercussions for doing bad things because there's nobody to find it out. And too many newspapers are going out of business. So on top of the fact that we're, we're in an era now where, you know, fake news is thrown around like, like candy, that's dangerous stuff. And then newspapers are being marginalized and people are being fired and, and it's all being mishandled. I, uh, to this day, I'm, I do a radio show. I do play-by-play. In my soul, I'm still a newspaper guy. It, it just kills me to see it. It really does. And did I worry about the ramifications? No. And of anything I've ever said on that radio slash simulcast, that got more reaction positive than anything. I don't think I can even remember any negative toward it. I had people from newspapers all around the country reach out to me on Twitter how that meant the world to them. It, it, it looked like it was liked or retweeted over 13,000 times. So it, it definitely struck a chord with people. And, and, and the, the reason I think it did, it wasn't some grandstand play by me. It was like it was from my heart. It breaks my heart to see what's happening with newspapers right now. They're too important to what this country is about. I mean, the whole country is built on the bedrock of freedom of the press. You have to let them do their thing. Now, are there people that are crooked in the press? Yeah. Are there people that make mistakes? Yeah. Are there people that print, like, stories that are wrong? Yeah, but I don't think that, for the most part, they do it on purpose. People make mistakes. But, I mean, to just marginalize the media like that is so dangerous for what this country is about. Give, last one on this is, given the connection that you've had with the Yankees, have you, has, it, has all this reevaluated your relationship with uh, Rudy Giuliani? given his relationship to Donald Trump? Um, you know, when I look at it, I don't even know you don't know this, Richard. Rudy Giuliani was the guy who married me and my wife. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, he was, uh, he, he was a guest at the wedding and, and you know, did the vows and whatever. Um, I, I know a different Rudy Giuliani than, than the one that's, that's working out. I've had no, since that date when we got married, I don't think I've ever... Um, had any interaction with him again. He was very kind with his time. He and his then wife came to the wedding and were very gracious, but um, no, it doesn't make me reevaluate what happened in the past. Uh, again, I don't, I don't really have much of a relationship with him now, not because of any involvement in government or anything like that. We you know, kind of drifted apart after the wedding. I appreciate you answering that. All right. Final two here. You, uh, you, you referenced this earlier. You signed a five-year deal with ESPN and you told this to Hannah that in all likelihood will be your last deal. You'd be 62. You don't want to necessarily say that you're retiring, but you know you you indicated yeah, you maybe know how that's that worked out. yeah, that's right. You indicated maybe that's the time. So you know what, having having interviewed so many broadcasters, Mike, over the years, and I, I'm always interested in particular in the broadcasters in their 60s, 70s, and 80s because they're usually really accomplished and interesting people. What they always will tell you is the games are still phenomenal. They still love what they do. It's the travel that eventually beats them. And I wonder for you, in your 60s, is that something you might want to scale back on but keep the sports talk show? Or are you the reverse? Like, they're going to have to drag you out of that baseball booth, uh, you know, at 85, 90 years old, you know, Vince Scully Scully years. You know what? I thought about it a lot, and I I wouldn't make any – I love doing the baseball games. And, And to be honest with you, to me – the baseball games are much easier than the sports talk show because, you know, what's happening on the field is the star 
you're just relaying what's happening on the field. On radio, you got to be up on everything. Uh, you're in a ratings battle. I don't have to worry about ratings with the Yes Network. The Yankees are going to get what the Yankees are going to get in terms of ratings. It's not because of their broadcasters. Uh, I, I look to John Sterling, who's he's going to be 81 this year, and he does every single inning of every game. And I, I, I do think a lot when I, I look at John, do I want to do that? And the, the one wild card that comes into this, Richard, are my kids. I mean, I got married late. I'm an older father. When I walk with my kids in the street, I, I get a lot of, gee, your grandkids are gorgeous. So um, that that's, that's <laughs> going to be tough. I mean, I, I you know, you don't have kids and then just ignore them. You have to be part of, of raising them. So, you know, I give it some thought. If I gave up the baseball, yeah, I'd still be working 12 months a year on the radio. If I gave up the radio, though, then I'd have six months off in the winter where I could be with them more and, and be involved in their lives. I mean, they're four and six. At this point, they don't quite get it, but my, uh, I think I told Hannah this. My daughter doesn't watch me on TV. She, when, whenever Jody puts the game on or the radio show, she'll walk out of the room. And I, I said to her, you know, she's six. I said, Callie, why don't you ever watch Daddy on TV? She goes, because when you're on TV, you're not here. So, I mean, that breaks your heart. I mean, you didn't have kids by accident. I mean, I waited a long time to do this. I want to do it right. But, you know, the things that I could give my children, a lot of it comes from these great jobs that I have. Uh, it's going to be a tough call. I w- I'm going to take it year by year after this uh, this contract's up. But I don't think I'm just going to walk away at 62 from both jobs. I think that would be silly. Uh, I still have an energy and a passion for it. But I would tell you this, 62 would probably be the end game for me to do both. Because doing both is exhausting during the baseball season. I mean, it's just absolutely exhausting. I'm talking on the air essentially for eight straight hours. And as I said earlier, everybody's waiting for you to trip up or say the wrong thing. And, I mean, that, that's a lot of pressure. And the New York Yankees, you know, aren't some, you know, independent league team. A lot of people care about the Yankees and what you say. So you got to be sharp and you have to be on your toes. So um, doing both of them, I don't think that's a long-term option. So I would have to decide which one I'd give up. But, the, you know, again, if you give up the radio show at some point, that does give you the winter off. If you give up the, if, if you give up the baseball, you're still working all year. And just for the listeners outside of New York who don't know, uh, Michael's wife, Jody Applegate, a accomplished uh, television broadcaster on her own, just Google her. She worked in New York for many, many, many years in some prominent spots. Um, I want to ask you one last question, Mike, and that's just basically on the Yankees, obviously, because you're because uh, you have a front row to this. The race between them and Boston this year should be fantastic. The Yankees obviously has got. Uh, Paxson, Jay Happ is back. They obviously have their, you know, ridiculous lineup, especially when it's healthy. From your perspective, what's the ceiling on this team, and what's the ceiling on this team, particularly in relation to the Red Sox? Well, I think they're better than the team last year, which won 100 games. Um, their lineup is is going to be better. I, I simply think because Stanton is going to be more comfortable in the second year, and also, you know, Judge was injured for close to two months. And I think that took a lot of them for them to still win hundred games. That was a big deal. But in terms of how far they go, I mean, Severino, his injury is, is really, really big. You know, people are trying to downplay it. And, you know, I've gone back and forth with some Yankee people say, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just from, from pitching. And, I, and my answer is you don't get irritation or inflammation in your rotator cuff for no reason. And they answer back. Yeah. Pitching. I said, yeah, but he hadn't pitched all winter. And for him to feel this on a breaking ball he threw 
in the um, in the bullpen. That's concerning. I mean, they're going to miss the first month with him. And you know, I, I love the acquisition of Paxton. I think Jay Half's a total pro. Um, and, and Tanaka is going to start on opening day. And you know, you know what he's going to give you. Severino is their ace. I mean, he's their Chris Sale. He's their Justin Verlander. You can't just take that out of the equation for a good part of time and not be affected. Yankees have enough in their farm system that can, they could go out and make a trade for somebody, but you, you can't lose ground early. And the Yankees are fortunate because if you look at their schedule in April, they play a lot of bad teams, a lot. I mean, their first nine games are against the, the Orioles and the Tigers, who are projected to be the two worst teams in baseball. So you could get fat right there, but I'm sorry – Severino sending him out is a lot different than Jonathan Loisega or Luis Sessa or Domingo Herman. They all have nice arms, but they're not Luis Severino. So I think that's a big key. And, and if, if it does turn out to be a long-term thing, and I'm hoping it's not because I like watching him pitch, their, their bullpen is the best bullpen I think ever assembled. I mean, it's like six deep of guys that could actually close games. So I think that will be the ultimate difference between the Yankees and the Red Sox. So I think that the Yankees have moved – ahead of the champion Red Sox on paper, and that's simply because the Red Sox bullpen is unproven. Michael Kay is the television voice of the New York Yankees for the Yes Network. He also hosts Center Stage on that network, and he's the host of the Michael Kay Show, which airs 3 to 7 on ESPN's New York City radio affiliate. If you're not in New York City, obviously you can stream that show live. Uh, Michael, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. You know, we've uh, sort of interacted on and off uh, – for many, many years, and uh, and I've always enjoyed those interactions, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Oh, you got it. Thanks for having me on. It was great. All right, and as we transition out of our Michael Kay interview, we bring in the roundtable part of this podcast. Mike McCarthy is a sports media reporter for the Sporting News and a longtime sports media reporter. You may recognize his byline as well from USA Today. Hannah Withiam is an associate editor for The Athletic. She works with me. Prior to that, she worked at the New York Post. Both Mike and Hannah are making their debuts on this podcast, and it is a, uh, Mike, it is a pretty good day, I guess, to do this, given all the New York news, Odell Beckham Jr., Le'Veon Bell, uh, Jim Dolan, uh, saying he was ambushed by fans. It's like crazy town right now in New York sports. Yeah, the, the the roof is coming off down here, Rich. Uh, I never thought anything could just blow Dolan off the back pages so quickly, but the OBJ news followed by the Le'Veon Bell news has everybody screaming. Uh, I'm of the giant fans camp that says, you know, the line to start canceling my season ticket starts on the right. I mean, to me, this was a heist by the Browns. Uh, the Giants got rid of a generational player, and Maybe the most exciting player in the league outside of Pat Mahomes. Wow. All right. Hannah, this has become an NFL podcast. Would you like to weigh in on the trade? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were saying last night, right after the Odell trade went down, now now what if the Jets signed Levy on Bell, too? And sure enough, we had that. So I don't think many New York sports fans are sleeping last night. Right, get us on. Um, get us. To think the Giants, yeah, to think they've lost Olivia Vernon and, and uh, Odell to the Browns in a week. And what they got back in return is it's pretty tough to stomach. Yeah, I was just going to say, Hannah, get us some subscriptions. This is, there's a lot of content going on today. So let's, <laughs> yes, there is. let's bring Landon Collins. <laughs> and then Landon, that's right. Bring some subscriptions. That's right. And Landon Collins. Yep. All right. So, Mike, here's where we're going to start. You uh, reported a couple of months ago 
correctly, by the way, congratulations on this, that Fox Sports was negotiating with Urban Meyer to be on a college football show. Uh, we have now since learned that Urban Meyer, I would sort of say, is either the centerpiece or certainly the most famous person on a new college football program featuring him, Reggie Bush, Rob Stone, Brady Quinn, and Matt Leinart. And what they're trying to do is to provide a, um, a their own college game day. They're not saying that they're going to be college game day, but they're saying they're going to make the attempt to try to have a Saturday morning show that leads into their games. So, Mike, I want to just sort of off, uh, ask you to start a general question. When you heard the cast and the idea, what were your initial thoughts? Well, what I originally uh, reported uh, was they were giving Urban the chance to either do games or to do a game day type show. And like a lot of coaches, he prefers to work on the studio because it's easier. Uh, it's a typical Fox hire, big glitzy name, a lot of money, uh, a lot of promises, but the devil's going to be in the details. Um, you have reported this, Richard. You were absolutely right that the guy was human Sominex the last time he was on TV. I mean, he put you to sleep on ESPN in 2011. He was your classic coach in waiting, waiting for his next gig, not willing to say anything, not willing to criticize anybody. So the question now is, are we going to get that Urban Meyer, or are we going to get the Urban Meyer who fully embraces TV and goes to the dark side? That's the big question. Uh, all right, Hannah, you know, College Game Day obviously has been a juggernaut for a long time. It's... um. I think when people think about watching a show on Saturday morning, that is the, the college football show, at least. That's the show they think about. Is there anything on that cast at Fox that would make you, or you maybe more importantly, that would make viewers want to turn from college game day to Fox to check out that crew? I think it would really just to just be to see how this group of people, how their chemistry is. Um, since we know what college game day is at this point, it's been around for, you know, since... It's 98, right? Um, and as we, as Michael was saying, Urban Meyer didn't have the greatest debut with ESPN. Is it going to be any different now that he's, as we think, fully moved on from football? Um, will he fully commit to two TV this time around? And how will he how will he do with the personalities of Quinn and Liner? Um, and then Reggie Bush is kind of a wild card. So. Um, as of now, it, just, it would just be to see, like we did with uh, the new ESPN Monday Night Football booth last year, just how the, how this is going to work. I think there's going to be a lot of commentary surrounding it, um, but really not really not sure what to expect at this point. Do you, uh, Hannah? Do you think a show can? Um, you think a show can succeed? A college football show can succeed without being at the campus or a campus setting each week, the way game day is. That's one of the biggest concerns here. Um, that's something they're, I think they're saying they're going to try to do a couple of those, but they really can't compete with ESPN in that way. And they don't really have the slate of college football games that ESPN does, besides maybe Ohio State, Michigan, <clears throat> which draws some of the largest TV audiences. They're not going to get those viewers who are tuning in to, uh, like, the, like viewers due to ESPN, to catch the pregame show um, before the game. So it's not going to have the same feel. Uh, but again, Fox still has success with their obviously their NFL pregame show, their MLB shows. So if they can carry that over into this one, apply some of um, those philosophies they've they've already developed, we could see something. Yeah, that's a good point, good Mike. Year. Mike, I'll go back. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Hannah. Mike, I'll go no. back to you. I mean, the one th the one thing that Fox has done um, 
at least in recent vintage, and it's really speaking to that baseball show, is they have created some good chemistry. You know, the Burkhart, Alex Rodriguez, David Ortiz group, uh, that was that's good. And obviously Fox NFL Sunday, even though they've been around for a long time, what they really are selling to you is chemistry, and they've sold that very well. So they do have some success, at least, to build on. I am not particularly very confident that this show is going to be any kind of uh, breakout hit. And without going to colleges, uh, I think this drastic um, comparison with game day is going to bury them. Uh, are you you more optimistic than me? And you have talked to Fox people maybe more than I have. Um, you know, what, what's, what's realistic for them in terms of getting some breakthrough here? I, I commend Fox for trying to take on the 300-pound gorilla and trying to take on college game day. But if I was a betting man, I would bet that Urban Meyer doesn't even last till year two. Mm. And I, I, I'll tell you why I, I find that. I, I think it would be easier for Urban Meyer to take on Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban than Kirk Hermstreet college game day. <laughs> I mean, they are the gold standard for sports studio shows outside of inside the NBA. They are beloved. Beloved. Herb Street's the best in the business. He's still got Lee Corso. Uh, and don't forget, Fox tried and failed with this a couple of years ago with Aaron Andrews. Remember, there was a Fox College Football Saturday, and that was going to take on game day. And what happened to that? So, uh, I mean, I commend Fox, and I, and I think this is the right move for them to try to do this. But in terms of their odds of succeeding, I don't think they're that great. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I, I, again, I think, as you said, they have th – th this is the hardest, I think, maybe even more than inside the NBA if you were going head-to-head. -head. This is the hardest show to beat in terms of a 1v1 matchup because of that college atmosphere. So we'll see what – We'll see what happens with Fox. Uh, all right, we're going to move on because uh, uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, both of you guys have to work today, so I don't want to keep you forever. <laughs> let's move on to um, let's move on to Monday Night Football. And Hannah, I'll start with you. Uh, Jason Witten, the story's a little bit old now, is gone, and now Monday Night Football has to make a decision whether they stick with Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarland in a two-person booth, or they end up bringing somebody in to make it a three-person booth, or just blow the whole thing up. If you were the producer of Monday Night Football, Hannah, what would you do? If I could, if I could give you the uh, keys to sort of staff this show, how would you staff it on air? Yeah, yeah. I, I really think we saw last year that the three-person booth really wasn't working, especially in the way that they built it, because these three guys were you know, new to this area, and you could sense as the games were going on that they weren't really um, helping each other. It was almost like they were competing and you could sense that um, as opposed to Tony Romo going in with Jim Nance and being you know, let out that way. So I think they should definitely stick to the two man unless of course, if Peyton Manning comes on board, I don't think they're going to turn that down. But again, would they, would they hold on to Booger then? Would it just be Peyton and Joe? I think that might be the better route than trying to go to three, the three-person booth. If they don't land Peyton, um, I think they might give these two guys another go-around. I, I think Joe did a, did a nice job last year, in particular. Mike? Um, I would back up the Brinks truck, point it at Peyton Manning's house, and say, how much do you want? Uh, that would start there. Uh, you know, I, I think Peyton Manning would go for like 8 to $10 million, but the question is, does he want to do TV in the wake of Tony Romo? Given that, I've got another idea, Rich. 
Okay. Uh, and this is something a little out of the box, but, you know, since the NFL is taking a look at everything, why not? What about a megacast Monday night football, similar to what they do with the college football national championship game? So instead of focusing on the lousy games they get in the schedule, they could focus on the innovation of having multiple announcer teams. Maybe you have a coach's room for Monday Night Football on ESPN News, or you have an insider's room on Monday Night Football on ESPN2, and then you have the main booth with Booger and Tessitore and Salters. Mike, I like that idea conceptually. I just I always wonder if ESPN or any network would be a little bit afraid of uh, you know cannibalizing their audience. The other thing is the NFL has proven that they really want their games on a singular place, generally speaking. Now, they have obviously had streaming with Amazon and stuff, but they want that number to be the biggest possible number. Uh, but it's interesting. Conceptually, I would love it, and I think fans would really dig it. It would cost them more money, but yeah, it's nothing else, Mike. Sounds like a column to write, you know? And they're doing it with the draft, right, Rich? I mean, they are doing it with the draft. ABC crew with Kirk Hobstreet doing the draft. And you're going to have, you know, the usual crew doing it on ESPN. So, so they're already taking this approach on um, several uh, fronts. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's a good way for ESPN to really try something that's innovative rather than, you know, fake innovation like the Boogamobile. Yeah, I, lo- I'm, I love uh, the Megacast option as a viewer because I want more choices than less choices. So I'm always, I'm always for that. Um, all right, Hannah, uh, I interviewed Michael Kay on this podcast. People have already listened to that. In, um, I will let the listeners here know that I have not interviewed Michael Kay as I am talking to you. So mm-hmm. um, I can't reference it because it hasn't happened yet. You, by the way, did interview Michael Kay in an excellent long Q&A for The Athletic, which I liberally have uh, stolen from for the podcast <laughs> coming up for Michael Kay. What, um, when you spoke to Kay, what stood out for you, Hannah? Uh, you did... You know, that was an ex- I don't know how long you talked to Kay, but that was an extensive yeah. interview for sure. Um, what stood out the most in that interview, at least in terms of him as an interview subject? Yeah, yeah. We spoke for about uh, 30 minutes, so I was really, really happy that he was willing to give me that time. And he really let down his guard, I found, during it. Um, something that really struck me throughout, without me even really bringing it up, was um, how much he... He mentioned this is sort of it's sort of starting to weigh on him, and he's starting to think about retirement. Um, with with all that he's doing each day, with the especially during Yankee season, the broadcasts get back late, the, the travel. He's not doing as much travel anymore as he used to. But that on top of the radio show every weekday, um, and with a family he has now, he's two young kids. It's he said to me near the end, he just signed a five-year deal with ESPN last July. Uh, so that ends in 2022, and he's not sure he sees himself doing the show beyond that. Um, of course, he had to he had to mention that he has to be sure he wants to retire because he doesn't want to pull the move of certain someone and back out in retirement. But um, <laughs> yeah, that that really stood out to me. Mike, uh, that certain someone is Mike Francesa, and you <laughs> having uh, having uh, lived in the New York City area for a long time have been. A- acutely aware of this. What is it about Mike Francesa and in particular sort of Mike Francesa and rating stories that draws so Mm -hmm. much traffic? The fascinating thing about Francesa and Francesa slash K is that there are people interested in this well beyond New York. And I don't know if that's just because New York is the media capital of the world. I don't know if that's just Francesa's clips have gone viral and people can't believe the hubris and 
and sort of the narcissism there. But it, that's always been fascinating to me that, you know, people have written on these two guys or done podcasts on these two guys very far from New York. And there is interest. It's always in, it's interesting. Yeah. What, do you, what, do, what do you make of that? Well, I'll start with you, Mike. What do you make of that? It's amazing. First of all, I want to compliment Hannah. That was a great interview. Uh, I loved it. I thought Kay was very revealing. I, I think the dynamic here is that France, Francesa is so pompous and so ridiculous that people love it when people like kind of stick a pin in him and deflate his balloon a little bit. I mean, I think there's two uh, reasons why the, these stories are so popular. You know, one, people want to see uh, Francesa go down because he acts like he's doing us a favor just being on the radio. Or two, you've got Francesa fans who've been, you know, listening to him since childhood, and they are going to stick with him no matter what. They're kind of like Donald Trump fans. No matter what you, you say to them, they're going to be on the guy's side. So I think those two opposing camps are going to read those stories. And, you know, and, and as you know, Rich, you know, Andrew and, and Neil have, you know, basically uh, turning these things out every week, and they get huge numbers. Hannah, um, you, you know, the, the athletic is sort of different in that, it's your story really was not done for page views, given that it's a subscription site. But my guess is that people were probably interested in the K interview far beyond New York. Do you have a thoughts mm -hmm. on just why, um, why those two figures in particular, or maybe why the fight in New York afternoon drive is of such interest to people outside of New York? Yeah. Yeah. Funny K Michael kept referring to it as uh, they're almost, it's almost like they're their own sports team and they're keeping score with these ratings books and that's made <laughs> right. into the headlines. Um, but I think it's just that they're two outside personalities and they've, they're clearly at in a very public competition and are willing to not only go at each other's shows, but at each other personally. Um, and that's, that's good view. That's good. Um, good TV, good, you know, reading, whatever it might be for, for people who want the drama. So it's funny, in one breath, Kay will say, you know, I don't care about Mike, I'm just worried about my show, I know my show is better. And in another breath, we'll say, oh, but I'm, you know, I've, I wake up every morning wanting to win. So it's pretty funny how I was really trying to get a feel in this, in this interview for how he approaches that competition. And you can tell that um, he definitely is fueled by that competitive fire with Mike, because he doesn't he doesn't like the way he's handled his successes. Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, uh, you know, again, I'm taping the interview later today. I will ask him about that. I'm sure Michael K. will answer. <laughs> One of the things I actually appreciate about Michael K. He's been very honest about his, um, he's been very honest about how he feels about Frances and sort of his passion to beat him. You don't often hear that, mm -hmm. but that's honest because anybody who's in sports talk radio absolutely wants to beat the competition. Many times does not like the competition. All right. right. Um, a couple more here before I let you guys go. Uh, Mike McCarthy, what um, one of the uh, sort of big sports media stories over the last couple of weeks is Jessica Mendoza getting a special advisor job with the New York Mets. And that follows Alex Rodriguez, who has a role with the New York Yankees. David Ross has a role with the Chicago Cubs. David Ortiz works for the Boston Red Sox. And there are others. Um, you can go down the list. I mean, tennis is filled with all of this stuff, basically people going on air, but also coaching other people. Uh, as a general rule, Mike, how do you feel about these um, these financial ties? I, I will, uh, you know, just quickly, I, I've written this and I've said this, is um, I have no problems with these people getting these jobs, but it, as a viewer, I, I no longer can take Jessica Mendoza and Alex Rodriguez, what they say about the respective teams that they work for. 
I can't take their commentary or analysis uh, other than either with a skepticism or b just very surface. And I'm going to get I'm going to get my information elsewhere from people who are not tied to the team. That's sort of my quick take on it. How do you feel about that? I would differ with you on this, Rich. I have no problem with it. I'm in favor of people making as much money as they can. Um, you know, everybody who's a broadcaster in sports has some sort of bias or friend that they're protecting or job that they're trying to get. And, you know, as long as they don't hide it and, you know, make a secret of it, I have no problem with it. Okay. That's such, I mean, again, uh, yeah, I would say, I would absolutely not say they shouldn't be, uh, uh, they shouldn't broadcast. They should. I do think it would be wise for ESPN to pull Mendoza off the Mets and pull Alex Rodriguez off the Yankees for the sheer sake of why would you put the broadcaster in that spotlight for viewers to have to parse every single word. Hannah, what about you? How do you feel about just these, um, increasingly we're seeing on-air people with um, holding actual jobs in sports organizations that they'll be commenting on? Yeah, initially, right off the bat, it really doesn't seem right. Um, I agree with you that that they should probably be taking off those, taking off those games or they're covering the Yankees and Mets. Um, in a different way, I guess it, you know, they're both, with Jesse Mendoza not being in the Mets front office, she'll be doing extra work on, on certain players and teams and, and having that different knowledge base, which she can then bring to the broadcasts, um, which could help overall. But I don't know, just, it doesn't, right. When you hear the news, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really, um, really feel right. Yeah, I mean, again, and I, I, I used to be much more hardcore on this. At, a, at one time, I would have been like, you know, they absolutely have to choose. They can't work for both. I, I've sort of right. lessened on that because I, I'm with Mike. I feel like, I feel like so many people have a conflict now. It's just unfortunate. Fortunately or unfortunately, it's the world we live in. But I, I do think, Mike, and maybe me and you disagree on this, I, I, to, to one, to put them on the air of the team that they're broadcasting, I always feel like it's just the network's trying to be – you know, sort of wink at you saying, oh, look, we got our insider here. But that insider is never, ever going to give you um, the full, I think, full look of the organization. And then secondly, and this is I know where I disagree with you, Mike, is just I, I'm a cynic here. I cannot there is no way if you're being paid by another organization, can you ever reveal everything, you know, and thus you're not working then on behalf of the viewer. First and foremost, you're working uh, first and foremost on behalf of the team. Secondly, then on behalf of you. And third, then on behalf of the viewer. Um, at the same time, I think I'm glad. I think Mendoza's incredibly smart. I think it's a great move by the Mets to get an outside the box hire. And obviously, Alex Rodriguez is a baseball savant. So I get why these teams are doing it. I just think as a viewer, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have my best interest now, first and foremost. Right. The key is to serve the viewer. You know, it's the same thing with Alex Rodriguez as Urban Meyer. If you're there, you know, just to collect the paycheck go through the motions, don't even bother because the viewers are going to see right through you. But if you have to serve the viewer, and to be honest, you know what I mean, then we'll support you. And, and I think that's the key right there is honesty. All right. We'll finish up with this, Hannah. The NCAA tournament is coming up. We're going all over the map here in our, in our limited time with you two. The NCAA tournament is uh, coming up on CBS and Turner. I am one who, uh, first of all, thank thank the Lord that they've decided to change that selection show and not put the, the teams in al- alphabetical <laughs> order. And, yeah, give it to us in brackets. But I'm one, Hannah, who I like what CBS and Turner have done very much because, um, you know, I'm of the age, and as is Mike, where I remember where you didn't have any choice to watch games in full. You had to watch the national game 
and then CBS would cut to like a fantastic finish and it was awesome and you'd get like the last 45 seconds of a game, but you could not choose what you wanted to watch. And now with these two networks, you know, assuming you have true TV, you're essentially the producer and you can watch, um, you can watch whatever you want. People can quibble with, uh, you know, who the broadcasters are, no Gus Johnson, Jim Nance doing the, the, the final game. But I think they've done an excellent job. I actually think this is one of the best things they do. You have not been on this podcast before. I'll just take your sort of general insights of how you think CBS and Turner do this tournament. Sure thing. Yeah, it's, it's almost hard to think about what it was like um, before they had it on all those, all those platforms. I mean, really nothing beats being able to sit down in front of your TV or device and switching to whichever game. You know, you're looking at the scores, what game is getting close, switch over to that screen, and you know you're going to have the game in full. So I completely agree with you, and they're rolling out a pretty pretty all-star cast for that as well. And, yes, very happy about the selection show going back to the traditional <laughs> way. <laughs> That's right. Mike? Mike? Mike, by the way, Hannah's, like, uh, shaming us in terms of her age. She can't remember a time when this <laughs> – when this when this happened, both of us have seen that. Uh, so, you but and Mike, I remember I, quite well. Yeah, yeah. Mike, are you uh, are you with me on this though? I feel like you know. Listen, you, you criticize CBS and Turner when it's warranted, and you praise when it's warranted. And I think in this case, I think they've done a great job as partners with the tournament. Personally, I, I'm totally with you on this. I mean, you know, first of all, sometimes the sports TV gods shine upon us, and they did this year by cutting that bloated mess last year of a selection show <laughs> in half. And getting it back down to an hour, which even then is a little long. Also, they're front-loading the brackets instead of that ridiculous alphabet soup that they did last year. So I think fans are going to really like that. But I, I think, too, I think the business is moving. You know, and the NBA is a perfect example of this. Sports TV viewers, as Rich said, are becoming their own directors, their own producers. They want choice. They want power. They want to watch games where and how they want to see them. They want to watch highlights where and how they want to see them. And that's why, you know what I mean, what they've done with the, the NCAA tournament, to me, has been one of the smartest things in sports in the last 20 years. Give viewers the power to watch the games they want. 100% agree. And... um and this is an example of two companies coming together to make things better for viewers. Uh, it's also, by the way, if you just a little inside baseball, you know, there's a reason why Turner wants its people on the selection show. There's a reason why Brian, I mean, Brian Anderson is a terrific broadcaster, but if you know, if you're Turner, you want your broadcasters to do uh, some of the biggest games, especially the year, let's say the finals are on CBS. So they have done a great job in terms of just coordinating this. And it'll be very interesting to see with Jeff Zucker now in charge of Turner sports, as opposed to David Levy, how that relationship goes forward because David Levy and Sean McManus, uh, the CBS had Sean McManus, David Levy turned, they had a really good working relationship. And that's the reason uh, why, why the tournament worked because everything floated down from that leadership. And so uh, knock on wood, um, uh, things will be the same and double knock on wood. I don't want a 15 person panel on uh, Turner the way CNN does (laughs) in its coverage. So if if Jeff Zucker is listening, and I know he's not, especially because some of the things I've said about CNN over the last couple of years, please do not bring 50 people onto the college basketball uh, panels. All right, Hannah, is there anything else? Mike, is there anything else before we let you go? You guys have been fantastic in your debut. You work for such little money, zero, so I appreciate you coming on. Um, If not, I will, uh, I will at least give your um, bios and where to get you. Hannah Withiam is an associate editor for The Athletic. Uh, check her work out on that site that we both work for and follow her on Twitter. Mike McCarthy is a sports media reporter 
for the sporting news. Check his work out and follow him on Twitter. Mike has a really good interview with Charlie Ebersol, the head of the uh, AAF. That was the latest I saw. And uh, Hannah has a fantastic interview with uh, Michael Kay, and she's in the new, does a lot of stuff with the New York branch of the athletics. So if you're a New York sports fan, she would be someone you should definitely follow. Uh, Hannah and Mike, thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, I'll definitely bring you guys back. Appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you, Richard. Rich, thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Michael Kay. Thanks to Hannah Withiam and Mike McCarthy for uh, their conversations. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, if you're interested in sports media conversations, uh, last week was Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network. Uh, prior to that, we've had some roundtables. John Oran, Chad Finn, uh, James Andrew Miller on the Adnan Burke firing. Please check out the Sports Media Podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Leave us a review and a rating. That is honestly the only way this podcast continues. And, uh, and if we continue to get audience, we'll continue to do it. Again, my thanks to Terrence for his excellent producing. Thanks to Cadence 13. And we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.